0: Part One, Alcibiades One, by Plato. Translated by Benjamin Jowett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Johnson. Appendix One it seems impossible to separate by any exact line the genuine writings of plato from the spurious the only external evidence to them which is of much value is that of aristotle for the alexandrian catalogues of a century later include manifest forgeries even the value of the aristotelian authority is a good deal impaired by the uncertainty concerning the date and authorship of the writings which are ascribed to him and several of the citations of aristotle omit the name of plato and some of them omit the name of the dialogue from which they are taken prior however to the enquiry about the writings of a particular author general considerations which equally affect all evidence to the genuineness of ancient writings are the following shorter works are more likely to have been forged or to have received an erroneous designation than longer ones and some kinds of composition such as epistles or panegyrical orations are more liable to suspicion than others those again which have a taste of sophistry in them or the ring of a later age or the slighter character of a rhetorical exercise or in which a motive or some affinity to spurious writings can be detected or which seem to have originated in a name or statement really occurring in some classical author are also of doubtful credit while there is no instance of any ancient writing proved to be a forgery which combines excellence with length a really great and original writer would have no object in fathering his works on plato and to the forger or imitator the literary hack of alexandria and athens the gods did not grant originality or genius further in attempting to balance the evidence for and against a platonic dialogue we must not forget that the form of the Platonic writing was common to several of his contemporaries. Isocrates, Euclid, Phaedo, Antisthenes, and in the next generation, Aristotle are all said to have composed dialogues, and mistakes of names are very likely to have occurred. Greek literature in the third century before Christ was almost as voluminous as our own, and without the safeguards of regular publication or printing, or binding or even of distinct titles an unknown writing was naturally attributed to a known writer whose works bore the same character and the name once appended easily obtained authority a tendency may also be observed to blend the works and opinions of the master with those of his scholars to a later platonist the difference between plato and his imitators was not so perceptible as to ourselves the memorabilia of xenophon and the dialogues of plato are but a part of a considerable socratic literature which has passed away and we must consider how we should regard the question of the genuineness of a particular writing if this lost literature had been preserved to us these considerations lead us to adopt the following criteria of genuineness one that is most certainly plato's which aristotle attributes to him by name which two is of considerable length, of, three, great excellence, and also, four, in harmony with the general spirit of the Platonic writings. But the testimony of Aristotle cannot always be distinguished from that of a latter age, parentheses, see above, end of parentheses, and has various degrees of importance, those writings which he cites without mentioning Plato, under their own names, e.g., the Hippias, the Funeral Oration, the phaedo etc have an inferior degree of evidence in their favour they may have been supposed by him to be the writings of another although in the case of really great works e g the phaedo this is not credible those again which are quoted but not named are still more defective in their external credentials there may be also a possibility that aristotle was mistaken or may have confused the master and his scholars in the case of a short writing but this is inconceivable about a more important work e g the laws especially when we remember that he was living at athens and a frequenter of the groves of the academy during the last twenty years of plato's life nor must we forget that in all his numerous citations from the platonic writings he never attributes any passage found in the extant dialogues to any one but plato and lastly we may remark that one or two great writings such as the parmenides and the politicus which are wholly devoid of aristotelian one credentials may be fairly attributed to plato on the ground of two length three excellence and four accordance with the general spirit of his writings indeed the greater part of the evidence for the genuineness of ancient greek authors may be summed up under two heads only one excellence and two uniformity of tradition a kind of evidence which though in many cases sufficient is of inferior value proceeding upon these principles we appear to arrive at the conclusion that nineteen-twentieths of all the writings which have ever been ascribed to plato are undoubtedly genuine. There is another portion of them, including the Epistles, the eponymous the dialogues rejected by the ancients themselves, namely the Axiochus, De Justo, De Virtute, Demodocus, Sisyphus, Eryxias, which on grounds both of internal and external evidence we are able with equal certainty to reject. But there still remains a small portion of which we are unable to affirm either that they are genuine or spurious they may have been written in youth or possibly like the works of some painters may be partly or wholly the compositions of pupils or they may have been the writings of some contemporary transferred by accident to the more celebrated name of plato or of some platonist in the next generation who aspired to imitate his master not that on grounds either of language or philosophy we should lightly reject them some difference of style, or inferiority of execution, or inconsistency of thought, can hardly be considered decisive of their spurious character, for who always does justice to himself, or who writes with equal care at all times? Certainly not Plato, who exhibits the greatest differences in dramatic power, in the formation of sentences, and in the use of words. If his earlier writings are compared with his later ones, say the Protagoras or Phaedrus, with the laws, or who can be expected to think in the same manner during a period of authorship extending over above fifty years, in an age of great intellectual activity, as well as of political and literary transition, certainly not Plato, whose earlier writings are separated from his later ones by as wide an interval of philosophical speculation as that which separates his later writings from Aristotle. The dialogues which have been translated in the first appendix, and which appear to have the next claim to genuineness among the Platonic writings, are the Lesser Hippias, the Menexenus or Funeral Oration, the first Alcibiades. Of these the Lesser Hippias and the Funeral Oration are cited by Aristotle, the first in the Metaphysics, the latter in the Rhetoric. Neither of them are expressly attributed to Plato, but in his citation of both of them he seems to be referring to passages in the extant dialogues. From the mention of Hippias in the singular by Aristotle we may perhaps infer that he was unacquainted with the second dialogue bearing the same name. Moreover, the mere existence of a greater and lesser Hippias, and of a first and second Alcibiades, does to a certain extent throw a doubt upon both of them though a very clever and ingenious work the lesser hippias does not appear to contain anything beyond the power of an imitator who was also a careful student of the earlier platonic writings to invent the motive or leading thought of the dialogue may be detected in xenophon memorabilia and there is no similar instance of a motive which is taken from xenophon in an undoubted dialogue of plato on the other hand the upholders of the genuineness of the dialogue will find in the hippias a true socratic spirit they will compare the ion as being akin both in subject and treatment they will urge the authority of aristotle and they will detect in the treatment of the sophist in the satirical reasoning upon homer in the reductio ad absurdum of the doctrine that vice is ignorance traces of a platonic authorship in reference to the last point we are doubtful as in some of the other dialogues whether the author is asserting or overthrowing the paradox of socrates or merely following the argument whither the wind blows that no conclusion is arrived at is also in accordance with the character of the earlier dialogues the resemblances or imitations of the gorgias protagoras and euthydemus which have been observed in the hippias cannot with certainty be adduced on either side of the argument on the whole more may be said in favour of the genuineness of the hippias than against it the menexenus or funeral oration is cited by aristotle and is interesting as supplying an example of the manner in which the orators praised the athenians among the athenians falsifying persons and dates, and casting a veil over the gloomier events of Athenian history. It exhibits an acquaintance with the funeral oration of Thucydides, and was perhaps intended to rival that great work. If genuine, the proper place of the Menexenus would be at the end of the Phaedrus. The satirical opening and the concluding words bear a great resemblance to the earlier dialogues. The oration itself is professedly a mimetic work, like the speeches in the Phaedrus, and cannot therefore be tested by a comparison of the other writings of Plato. The funeral oration of Pericles is expressly mentioned in the Phaedrus, and this may have suggested the subject in the same manner that the Clytophon appears to be suggested by the slight mention of Clitophon and his attachment to Thrasymachus in the Republic, and the Theages by the mention of theages in the apology and republic or as the second alcibiades seems to be founded upon the text of xenophon memorabilia a similar taste for parody appears not only in the phaedrus but in the protagoras in the symposium and to a certain extent in the parmenides to these two doubtful writings of plato i have added the first alcibiades which of all the disputed dialogues of plato has the greatest merit and is somewhat longer than any of them though not verified by the testimony of aristotle and in many respects at variance with the symposium in the description of the relations of socrates and alcibiades like the lesser hippias and the menexenus it is to be compared to the earlier writings of plato the motive of the piece may perhaps be found in that passage of the symposium in which alcibiades describes himself as self-convicted by the words of socrates for the disparaging manner in which schleiermacher has spoken of this dialogue there seems to be no sufficient foundation at the same time the lesson imparted is simple and the irony more transparent than in the undoubted dialogues of plato we know too that alcibiades was a favourite thesis and that at least five or six dialogues bearing this name passed current in antiquity and are attributed to contemporaries of Socrates and Plato. 1. In the entire absence of real external evidence, for the catalogues of Alexandrian librarians cannot be regarded as trustworthy, and 2. In the absence of the highest marks either of poetical or philosophical excellence, and 3. Considering that we have expressed testimony to the existence of contemporary writings bearing the name of Alcibiades, we are compelled to suspend our judgment on the genuineness of the extant dialogue neither at this point nor at any other do we propose to draw an absolute line of demarcation between genuine and spurious writings of plato they fade off imperceptibly from one class to another there may have been degrees of genuineness in the dialogues themselves as there are certainly degrees of evidence by which they are supported. The traditions of the oral discourses both of Socrates and Plato may have formed the basis of semi-Platonic writings. Some of them may be of the same mixed character which is apparent in Aristotle and Hippocrates, although the form of them is different. But the writings of Plato, unlike the writings of Aristotle, seem never to have been confused with the writings of his disciples this was probably due to their definite form and to their inimitable excellence the three dialogues which we have offered in the appendix to the criticism of the reader may be partly spurious and partly genuine they may be altogether spurious that is an alternative which must be frankly admitted nor can we maintain of some other dialogues such as the parmenides and the sophist and politicus that no considerable objection can be urged against them though greatly overbalanced by the weight chiefly of internal evidence in their favour nor on the other hand can we exclude a bare possibility that some dialogues which are usually rejected such as the greater hippias and the clitophon may be genuine the nature and object of these semi-platonic writings require more careful study and more comparison of them with one another and with forged writings in general than they have yet received before we can finally decide on their character we do not consider them all as genuine until they can be proved to be spurious as is often maintained and still more often implied in this and similar discussions but should say of some of them that their genuineness is neither proven nor disproven until further evidence about them can be adduced and we are as confident that the epistles are spurious as that the republic, the timaeus, and the laws are genuine. On the whole, not a twentieth part of the writings which pass under the name of Plato, if we exclude the works rejected by the ancients themselves, and two or three other plausible inventions, can be fairly doubted by those who are willing to allow that a considerable change and growth may have taken place in his philosophy parentheses, see above, of parentheses, that twentieth debatable portion scarcely in any degree affects our judgment of Plato, either as a thinker or a writer, and though suggesting some interesting questions to the scholar and critic, is of little importance to the general reader. Alcibiades I. Introduction the first alcibiades is a conversation between socrates and alcibiades socrates is represented in the character which he attributes to himself in the apology of a know-nothing who detects the conceit of knowledge in others the two have met already in the protagoras and in the symposium in the latter dialogue as in this the relation between them is that of a lover and his beloved But the narrative of their loves is told differently in different places. For in the Symposium, Alcibiades is depicted as the impassioned but rejected lover, here as coldly receiving the advances of Socrates, who, for the best of purposes, lies in wait for the aspiring and ambitious youth. Alcibiades, who is described as a very young man, is about to enter on public life, having an inordinate opinion of himself and an extravagant ambition socrates who knows what is in man astonishes him by a revelation of his designs but has he the knowledge which is necessary for carrying them out he is going to persuade the athenians about what not about any particular art but about politics when to fight and when to make peace now men should fight and make peace on just grounds and therefore the question of justice and injustice must enter into peace and war. And he who advises the Athenians must know the difference between them. Does Alcibiades know? If he does, he must either have been taught by some master, or he must have discovered the nature of them himself. If he has had a master, Socrates would like to be informed who he is, that he may go and learn of him also alcibiades admits that he has never learned then has he inquired for himself he may have if he was ever aware of a time when he was ignorant but he never was ignorant for when he played with other boys at dice he charged them with cheating and this implied a knowledge of just and unjust according to his own explanation he had learned of the multitude why, he asks, should he not learn of them the nature of justice, as he has learned the Greek language of them? To this Socrates answers that they can teach Greek, but they cannot teach justice, for they are agreed about the one, but they are not agreed about the other. And therefore Alcibiades, who has admitted that if he knows he must either have learned from a master or have discovered for himself the nature of justice, is convicted out of his own mouth alcibiades rejoins that the athenians debate not about what is just but about what is expedient and he asserts that the two principles of justice and expediency are opposed socrates by a series of questions compels him to admit that the just and the expedient coincide alcibiades is thus reduced To the humiliating conclusion that he knows nothing of politics, even if, as he says, they are concerned with the expedient. However, he is no worse than other Athenian statesmen, and he will not need training, for others are as ignorant as he is. He is reminded that he has to contend not only with his own countrymen, but with their enemies, with the Spartan kings and with the great king of Persia and he can only attain this higher aim of ambition by the assistance of Socrates. Not that Socrates himself professes to have attained the truth, but the questions which he asks bring others to a knowledge of themselves, and this is the first step in the practice of virtue. The dialogue continues. We wish to become as good as possible, but to be good in what? Alcibiades replies. Good in transacting business? but what business the business of the most intelligent men at athens the cobbler is intelligent in shoemaking and is therefore good in that he is not intelligent and therefore not good in weaving is he good in the sense which alcibiades means who is also bad i mean replies alcibiades the man who is able to command in the city but to command what horses or men and if men under what circumstances i mean to say that he is able to command men living in social and political relations and what is their aim the better preservation of the city but when is a city better when there is unanimity such as exists between husband and wife then when husbands and wives perform their own special duties there can be no unanimity between them Nor can a city be well ordered when each citizen does his own work only. Alcibiades, having stated first that goodness consists in the unanimity of the citizens, and then in each of them doing his own separate work, is brought to the required point of self-contradiction, leading him to confess his own ignorance. But he is not too old to learn, and may still arrive at the truth, if he is willing to be cross-examined by Socrates he must know himself that is to say not his body or the things of the body but his mind or truer self the physician knows the body and the tradesman knows his own business but they do not necessarily know themselves self-knowledge can be obtained only by looking into the mind and virtue of the soul which is the diviner part of a man as we see our own image in another's eye and if we do not know ourselves we cannot know what belongs to ourselves or belongs to others and are unfit to take a part in political affairs both for the sake of the individual and of the state we ought to aim at justice and temperance not at wealth or power the evil and unjust should have no power they should be the slaves of better men than themselves None but the virtuous are deserving of freedom. And are you, Alcibiades, a free man? I feel that I am not, but I hope, Socrates, that by your aid I may become free, and from this day forward I will never leave you. The Alcibiades has several points of resemblance to the undoubted dialogues of Plato. The process of interrogation is of the same kind with that which socrates practices upon the youthful cleinias in the euthydemus and he characteristically attributes to alcibiades the answers which he has elicited from him the definition of good is narrowed by successive questions and virtue is shown to be identical with knowledge here as elsewhere socrates awakens the consciousness not of sin but of ignorance Self-humiliation is the first step to knowledge, even of the commonest things. No man knows how ignorant he is, and no man can arrive at virtue and wisdom who has not once in his life, at least, been convicted of error. The process by which the soul is elevated is not unlike that which religious writers describe under the name of conversion, if we substitute the sense of ignorance for the consciousness of sin. In some respects the dialogue differs from any other Platonic composition. The aim is more directly ethical and hortatory. The process by which the antagonist is undermined is simpler than in other Platonic writings. And the conclusion more decided. There is a good deal of humour in the manner in which the pride of Alcibiades, and of the Greeks generally, is supposed to be taken down by the spartan and persian queens and the dialogue has considerable dialectical merit but we have a difficulty in supposing that the same writer who has given so profound and complex a notion of the characters both of alcibiades and socrates in the symposium should have treated them in so thin and superficial a manner in the alcibiades or that he would have described to the ironical socrates the rather unmeaning boast that Alcibiades could not attain the objects of his ambition without his help or that he should have imagined that a mighty nature like his could have been reformed by a few not very conclusive words of socrates for the arguments by which alcibiades is reformed are not convincing the writer of the dialogue whoever he was arrives at his idealism by crooked and tortuous paths in which many pitfalls are concealed. The anachronism of making Alcibiades about twenty years old during the life of his uncle, Pericles, may be noted, and the repetition of the favourite observation, which occurs also in the Lachaise and Protagoras. The great Athenian statesmen, like Pericles, failed in the education of their sons, There is none of the undoubted dialogues of Plato in which there is so little dramatic verisimilitude. End of part one recording by Kevin Johnson